Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm your co-host, Jax Nethlin. And joining us this week, we have a special guest. Hello, my freaky darlings. <laughs> my name's Mike Knoll. You have heard me out here before, but I also co-host the Equalizers Podcast, where we take movies that didn't get a sequel or prequel, either because they're too good and they don't need one, or they're too bad and they don't deserve one, and we give them one. Our back catalog includes Space Jam 2, The A-Team 2, <laughs> Speed Racer 2. We, we've got across the board, and then I also co-host Studying Granada with Jackson, where we watch the 1980s Sherlock Holmes television series starring Jeremy Brett, and we read the stories and we talk about it. And it makes a lot of sense for us to have a Sherlock aficionado on this movie, which delves deep into the Sherlock Holmes mythos and has a nuanced critique of it. Yep. Yep, that happens. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Episode's over, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, now that introductions are out of the way, thank you for joining us for What If number three of our comics bracket. This week we will be discussing 1999's Mystery Men, as well as 2003's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. These films don't really have a lot in common, other than the fact that they are team-up movies that do not include the big two, which... I guess it's pretty interesting, especially since both of these films happened before Avengers did. Also, they both have one girl on the team. I think it's it's unlikely allies, because <laughs> other than Shoveler and Mr. Furious and the Blue Raja, the rest of the team, they meet at a barbecue that they throw to recruit, and like League is they're pulled together by ostensibly the government. Both interact complicatedly with Indian characters. <laughs> that they do. <laughs> we'll get into that a little bit more later. They also are both kind of from this very tumultuous period of change for the superhero genre. So prior to about 98, superhero films were very trapped in this 1930s mindset. You see it with a lot of the set design for the Batman films, Superman films, even the animated series. It's very apparent there. And kind of this feeling that these superheroes are wacky things of the past. Mm -hmm. Then between about 1998 and 2000, we see a shift to imagining superheroes in the modern day. So we have things like Blade, we have things like the first X-Men film, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. As kind of the big impetus for that shift that we see around the turn of the century. People started realizing that superhero films could be both modern and good, but they hadn't quite figured out how to make that work every time yet. So they were starting to throwing things at the wall and seeing what stuck. So I think we should just go ahead and dive into Mystery Men. But before we do that, because we have Mike on once again, I think it's time for Daddy's Tomatoes. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I'm waiting to be a Do you mind explaining what Daddy's Tomatoes are for our listeners who might not be as familiar with your work? Yeah, so over on the Equalizers, I plumb through Rotten Tomatoes to find the weird reviews. And there's a fine line between somebody who's trying to be funny and somebody who just is screwy. So I have a few reviews here. This first one comes from Austin S., who gave this four and a half stars. Thanks to T-Mobile, I'm going to see Suicide Squad this Friday. Hashtag T-Mobile Tuesdays. End of review. <laughs> I mean, I will grant them that there are a lot of similarities between mm -hmm. Suicide Squad and Mystery Men. Yeah. Well, this was written in 2016. <laughs> so. Impressive. <laughs> yeah. Our next review comes from Alex K, who gave this two stars. 2008's The Dark Knight is my second favorite film of all time. End of review. <laughs> Most of the reviews weren't actually about Mystery <laughs> Men. Like, the ones I could find that were funny were people just not talking about Mystery <laughs> Men at all. 
This one's a little different, and it's from Zotra Blue Z. That's their name. Sucked because it was not funny at all. It was just embarrassing. Ben Stiller is terrible. Sucked. If you enjoy this, you're probably at the age of 14 because by then you wouldn't be able to tell what from what. I know I didn't back then. It's that age where you think Twilight is cool, but no. <laughs> Actually, I <under> review. <laughs> <sighs> There's an impressive amount of uh, insight into these people's minds. <laughs> yeah, Madison has commented before that some of the ones we find that aren't reviews, we could catch serial killers <laughs> with them. There was one on the A-Team where somebody who was talking about the date they went on when they saw that A-Team movie, they counted how many people were in the theater. And it's like, that's not okay. <laughs> like, it was just weird. It's like, there were 15 people in the theater, including us. It's like, yeah. yeah, oftentimes these feel less like reviews and more cries for help. John Y. gave this three stars. The Anti-Watchman. I liked it. There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. But, it's uh, not a bad summary, honestly. <laughs> no. I have one more review. Go for it. This comes from M. Knoll, who gives us less than League of Extraordinary Gentlemen stars. No disrespect, <laughs> but if I had to put this in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen head-to-head, -head, I'd pick the League and not this. End of review. Wait, is that you? Yeah. <laughs> less than League of Extraordinary Gentlemen stars? <laughs> what a what a weird coincidence. Here, end of the tomatoes. I think the Watchmen point is a predicted jumping off point, honestly. That's, it is much like Watchmen in that it's a team of misfits grouping up to stop a stop an evil dude with an evil plan. I didn't think Watchmen teamed up to stop an evil dude, though, didn't they? They kind of arrived at the same time. and decided <laughs> They, not they arrived at the evil plan <laughs> at the same time. So, quick summary. Mystery Men takes place in a world of superheroes about some of the dread of super society. They have very, not very good powers, and... When Casanova Frankenstein, a supervillain, breaks out of not Arkham Asylum and kidnaps not Superman, these are the misfit losers who have to save the day. And they recruit a team and try to do that. I think the first surprising thing about this film is just how much star power it has. Yeah. We yeah. have Jeffrey Rush here as Casanova Frankenstein, the main antagonist. Greg Kinnear plays Captain Amazing, the Superman analog. We have... Ben Stiller as Mr. Furious. He says Ben Stiller. Let's <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean. The exact character that Ben Stiller was playing in 1999. We have William H. Macy as The Shoveler. He shovels very well. The Shoveler is my favorite. Yeah. I love William H. Macy in this. We have Hank Azaria as the Blue Raja. Most of you won't recognize his face, but you probably recognize his voice if you've ever seen The Simpsons. He was the scientist that Phoebe and Friends dated. That might help more people recognize his face. <laughs> And then, if you grew up during a certain time period, you'll know who these people are. We have Paul Rubens as the Spleen. Many people will recognize him as Pee Wee Herman. Kel Mitchell from Keenan and Kel as Invisible Boy. And Janine Garofalo as the Bowler. Not to mention Eddie Izzard as Tony D? His name's Tony, but I don't know. I can't remember if it's Tony P or Tony D. He's a disco-themed supervillain. We also have all of the goody mob playing the not so goody mob in this see i don't know who the goody mob are they're a musical act CeeLo green is one of the people who was okay. involved in that okay so, so. CeeLo green is in this film that's right i recognize him i didn't know that he was part of uh that was like a joke <laughs> what we're saying is if you need a linchpin in your six trickers of kevin bacon this is probably a really useful thing to have in your back pocket yes there's a lot of stars here, especially like people who were very big in 1999. Uh, so the budget for this film was 68 million. It made 33. 
Which explains why this is not a film that's held in very high regard. To be fair, part of that is probably also because it opened the same weekend as The Sixth Sense. I mean, visually, it really makes me think of Burton's Batman films. Oh, yeah. And I think that that probably drew also unfair comparisons of like, oh, they're trying to do that, but it's like... Yeah. It's not as good, and they weren't trying to be as good. They were just, like, stealing the aesthetic yeah. for the film. But like, It's more like epic movie or a scary movie as opposed to... You mean superhero movie. <laughs> yeah, there's one of those. Parts of this movie are really fun. Parts are not. Uh, and the spleen, I think, is kind of the... Every time I was having a good time, his fart-based superpowers would come back, and I'd be like, oh, right... Part of that is a personal preference from you, though. Yes. Uh, but I will also readily admit that this movie would be vastly improved with just cutting the Spleen character entirely. But who else can Janine Garofalo refuse to touch? <laughs> I mean, nobody else is so repellent that the one girl character won't show him any affection. It's incredibly impressive because Janine Garofalo as the bowler is actually one of the first representations of a female superhero on screen. Like, there's this and the mostly unreleased 1994 Supergirl movie. Huh. Although, admittedly, I'm questioning to what extent she's a superhero. It's more that she has a useful tool that she uses to fight crime. Like, I mean, Iron Man. Eh, okay, yeah, fair enough. Like, yeah. if Batman yeah. and Iron Man are superheroes, the bowler is one. I'm questioning Batman. Green Arrow. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> anyway. She effectively has a haunted bowling ball. It happens to be haunted by her father, who was killed by Eddie Izzard's character prior to this film. I like the bowler. I feel like the one-sided father-daughter bickering is overused a little bit mm. for me. Because at the end, she gives like this. There's a time for separation. Let me tell you something. This is it. Etc. And it feels like they were going for some kind of arc that was mostly just her and her dad fighting. <laughs> and then at the end, it's like, here we are. It's time to part. And it just felt like there was... Either too much or not enough. Like, they needed to really mm -hmm. dig in more or cut yeah. some of it. Like, yeah. Although the line... Okay, now I'm going back to graduate school. That was the agreement. That's the kind of thing I wanted more of. Not just, like, bickering about her friends exactly. or whatever. I wanted more of, I don't want to do this. Or if she, if she had a character trait that was good or bad and that changed through the film because of yeah. what they were talking yeah. about. I know. We may be asking a lot of mystery men to have <laughs> well-done character arcs, but... This is an ensemble film that does not really juggle its ensemble very well. Mm -hmm. They did the uh, TMNT thing where they're like, hmm, this guy's got a character trait of being angry. We'll make him the main focus of the arc because it's an easy arc to do. Yeah, and the thing is, he is this complete parody of a certain type of anti-hero that was very prevalent in the sure. 90s, mm -hmm. as well as a parody of the type of people who get really into those comics. And I think Ben Stiller's a good casting choice for it, but I don't think it's terribly compelling for the entire film. I mean, parody isn't necessarily a character trait or <laughs> yeah. arc. Like, yeah. it's just kind of a state of being. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's mostly like we're poking fun at this thing that we see as a detriment to society. I mean, the scene where he and the waitress, who falls in love with him because he's mean to her, I guess... He's mean to her bunch of times and shows one glimpse of vulnerability and then she's into it. The scene where he tries to, like, tell her his name is yeah. great because he just can't let go. Dark Dirk. It was, uh, I was christened Dirk Steele and I changed to Phoenix. For forget about it. It's, it's, it's okay. <sighs> and then she's just, like, is gonna leave because he's obviously not gonna do it. Yeah. Like, that was a good scene. That was a, a good character moment. But like the bowler, yeah. it wasn't really built too well. It also kind of falls into the whole thing of, like, superhero's girlfriend used as 
No, like, kind of like, a, like ah, I had your girlfriend now, but like they've gone like maybe half a date. Hostage. Yeah, hostage. Yeah, hostage. yeah thank yeah. you. Sorry. Although I will give the movie props for not fridging her. Yeah, that was good. I wanted more of the shoveler. You talk about the easy ones. That would have been a good one that is also kind of easy. Of You're not successful at this. You need to quit. Oh, I can't quit. Okay, well, if you leave again, I'm leaving you. Yeah. Like, that was very effective. Yeah, they had the foundations poured for all of these various character arcs, mm-hmm. and there just wasn't quite enough to bite into for anyone. Because the Blue Raja has the thing with his mother coming to terms with who he is as a person. Mm-hmm. There's the shoveler and the tension he has with his family and his lifestyle of superheroing. And spleen. <laughs> Spleen doesn't really have a character because he's, he's a walking fart joke. Mm-hmm. Like Invisible Boy doesn't really have one either, unfortunately. I mean, a little bit of being underappreciated slash the rest of them kind of this D tier superhero that yeah. nobody looks at. He mm-hmm. can turn invisible. Yeah, and I think if they would have spent a little bit time maybe figuring out how to better juggle that ensemble and give them a little bit more character growth mm-hmm. as part of the narrative and then coming together as a team. I think that would have worked more. Instead, a lot of the film is just kind of gag a minute stuff. Yeah. The film very much feels if Mel Brooks directed a Joe Schumacher Batman. I, I see that a lot, yeah. I think if there had been one less person on the team, I was like, I'm going to say cut Spleen, but like if they cut like Invisible Boy or the Raja or someone, like just one less character to juggle, there could have been time to flesh out the arcs a little better. Mm-hmm. I think where this movie does succeed with juggling characters, though, is all of the antagonists. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think we get just enough characterization for the Disco Boys and Casanova Frankenstein. <sighs> And to a certain extent, Captain Amazing. I want to talk about Casanova Frankenstein. Okay. I love the name. Yeah. Now there was a supervillain. But you cannot name a character Casanova Frankenstein and then vaguely dress him like a Lothario and nothing else about him is either Casanova or Frankenstein. <laughs> that is just, that's not fair. You wasted the name. None of, no one can use Casanova Frankenstein ever again now. And this is what we got for it. Like, I was so pumped when I heard the name. I was like, that's amazing. And when it became clear he was going to come back, I was like, yes, here we go. This is going to be great. And then it was, I'll say, just Jeffrey Rush in a Lothario suit. He's great. Don't get me wrong. Like, I love that character. He could have been named literally anything else. He could have been called the Spleen. (laughs) And it would have been just as effective. When we were watching, uh, this is my first time watching Mystery Men, and we were Watching it and re- you know reading off a list of villains and Casanova Frankenstein gets mentioned and I slammed the pause button and said wait I need a whole film about that I don't know who it is but I want a whole film about him and then Alex Turner was like well you're gonna be very excited about the rest of the movie then <laughs> I think the Casanova part is fine I think they incorporated that well but I don't think there's enough Frankenstein yeah. like there's a little bit of the mad science but I don't think there's enough <laughs> yeah he was functionally just a sort of Bond villain. We'll say Austin Powers villain because I mean, <laughs> yeah. it is a parody. Yeah. yeah. But like, I wanted Frankenstein thing because it's such a good name. I love good names. I love good goofy superheroes, and you can't call a character Casanova Frankenstein and then just do a little bit of the Casanova part. I will grant you that. I also really enjoyed the Disco Boys. Oh, the Disco Boys were great. Those were perfect. Eddie does his thing where he just sort of walks into a set being high as balls and cooler than everybody else around him, waving a gun around. That's what he does. I love Eddie Izzard's style seems to be American or British? American? Okay. And then just goes and does whatever the fuck he wants anyway. <laughs> like, he seems to know what accent to do it in. 
I think one of my favorite scenes that involves the Disco Boys is when the trio of them are critiquing them. It's like, uh, that's it? That's your power? You have guns? And then they get their asses beat? <laughs> yeah, they're like laughing about how there's no theme and there's not nothing tying them together. Like, oh, that should be a gold chain. Come on. I love when Eddie Izzard comes out and I think it's right before he and Gene Garofalo fight and she's like going to get him or something. He's, you can't kill me. Because I'm protected. By the god of Hackhead. <laughs> and he like from like a mile away just air, air sprays his poof. And then it turns into a flamethrower a few yeah. seconds later. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. We need that character to show up in in the MCU and the DCEU without explanation, just as mm-hmm. a side character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talked about how this film doesn't utilize its ensemble cast well. It's also paced very badly. <laughs> I don't know. It didn't bother me too much. I think it had a pretty good structure. Um, you establish the character's conflict. You establish the world conflict. You heighten that a little bit. They try and fail. Then they go seeking allies. And then they do a training montage. And then they have their final fight. I think we get a little bit lost in the middle there between the second and third assaults on Casanova Frankenstein's lair. I'll give you that. There's also, I really don't think the starting in media rest works here. Mm. I don't think they've done enough to establish what the world is like for us to just throw us into this, like, geriatric nightclub. I will counterpoint that. (laughs) I think it's perfect to start there. For this movie that you set up what is clearly, I think, supposed to be Tim Burton's Gotham. Visually, you steal it. And then you immediately cut to Joel Schumacher's geriatric nightclub. (laughs) I think that is a perfect way to be like, this is what you're getting. Maybe not necessarily geriatric nightclub to start, but something similar. I, I really liked the, the opening, I thought. but Yeah, I think it does a good job of showing us what kind of world we're in. It gives us our incompetent trio, our noticeably better main hero, and then the sort of style of things that are going to be happening. I also feel like geriatric nightclub, which is a great band name, is a good metric for the trio. You say competent, and like they're doing okay, but they also don't succeed. <laughs> And it's kind of like a good, we're setting the bar for this trio of they couldn't even foil a robbery at the geriatric nightclub. <laughs> if it was a bank robbery, it's like, oh, okay, well, maybe they're just not that good. They, they couldn't stop these weirdos from stealing from old people at a nightclub. Like, that's a different lower bar. <laughs> Thinking about it a little bit more, I think mostly what my problem is is that the fight scene is not shot very well. Oh, that's true. And I think... You're not putting your best foot forward there, mm. and I think the rest of the film kind of suffers for that. Mm. I will say that the training sequence with the Sphinx is a little bit too long, and the characters don't seem to change all that much apart from Ben Stiller, who has a name. Mr. Furious. Yeah, Ben Stiller has his, like, I'm going to leave the team because I'm mad. I'm going to come back now. Arc that you get in a lot of these things. Yeah. I think it's also frustrating because the film has two montages. It has that training montage and then the superhero recruitment montage. Ah, uh, yes. To Smash Mouth's All-Star. Well, no. The training montage is to Smash Mouth's All-Star. Sma- yeah. The other one is something that is not that. The um, recruitment montage does feature Dane Cook as the waffler. It also features Ball State alum Doug Jones as Pencilhead. And I will point out this film came out two years before Shrek. So All-Star was not... Forever linked with Shrek as a franchise. I am ragging on this film a lot. There are some bits that I really like. Like there's some genuine body horror when the evil machine thing is going off that are actually like haunting. Like they look bad, but I don't know what that would look like in real life for someone to 
go through rapid mutation and also to stop existing at the same time. It's creepy and it will stay with me. We could probably go on about Mystery Men for a long time because there's a lot to unpack here and honestly I think more people should study this film. This film is interesting for a lot of reasons outside of the film. Mm-hmm. It is a stepping stone for superhero films. The ways that it complicates the narrative around Hank Azaria voicing Apu. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a thing that I know. probably as a kid would have thought was hilarious. The way he could just go into the Blue Raja voice very quickly, but you know now is he's basing a superhero off the British Raj, which <laughs> is like, oh, <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. Yeah, that's nothing his films have in common. Well, I think it's probably time for us to move over to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm-hmm. You have more tomatoes for us? I do, yeah. Hannah D gave this one and a half stars. Really not that good. Almost bad in a review. <laughs> one and a half stars is almost bad. That half star puts it right above. Like, <laughs> one star is bad. <laughs> Jesse T gave this three stars. I would probably intensely dislike the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, if not for the fact that I am so greatly amused by it. End of review. All of these are, all of these reviews are either Sawyer's contribution to any discussion, <laughs> really not that good, almost bad, or just like I would really not like this if I didn't like it so much. <laughs> and our last review comes from Eric L, who gave us a half a star. You can't have a car chase in a city made of rivers. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> Which, for the listener, is almost exactly a thing Alex said while watching this movie. (laughs) Yes. I think those three reviews actually encapsulate the three opinions at this table. (laughs) (laughs) So this film is based off of an Alamore comic of the same name that has the premise of what if every Victorian thing and they fight some other Victorian things. So we've got Dr. Jekyll, um, Mina Murray, and Alan Quartermain, and some other characters. And the comics are interesting, and if you're into Victorian stuff, you might enjoy them, but a uh, heavy trigger warning for some stuff that goes on. Just throwing it out there. You could pretty much tack that onto anything Alan Moore has ever done. That's true. I mean, Alan Moore hasn't written a volume of comics that doesn't involve at least one sexual assault. So, like... Yeah. Yeah. So, go in with that warning. Yeah. And there's some other not great stuff in there about, like, portrayals of Asian people, so... Mm. Mr. Hyde is openly racist. It's pretty awful. I don't want to say none of that is present here, but what is is much lessened. It's like the PG-13 version of all of that. It's not as openly atrocious. Yes. Which I think helps because all the ways in which this film is bad are fun and wacky as opposed to, mmm, that's uncomfortable kind of stuff. I saw this movie when I was like 13 and I didn't get a lot of the literary references, but I really liked it. So I, I bought it and I watched it just ad nauseum, but I didn't read the comics until I was probably 20. And at the time I was like, yeah, this isn't great, but like, I really like the story and rereading for this. I was like, no, this just really isn't great. It's mostly Alan Moore being like, well, it's Victorian time, so I can pretty much put in whatever I want. This movie is like, well, we can't do that. And we hopefully we don't want to do that. And the film has more or less the same plot as the, as the first volume of the comic book in which Moriarty recruits a bunch of misfit monsters to fight Moriarty as a secret plan to get all of their science and DNA and stuff to make weapons to make money. And yeah. also to try and start off World War One a few years prior to when it actually happened. It's kind of a two-pronged thing. He wants to start World War One. He also wants to have the various weird from all these characters. And either is good, both is double win. 
Especially since he can then take the weird and weaponize it and then sell the weapons. So in the comic, he is running MI6, and he sends them after the devil doctor, who's a Chinese person who is like a gang leader or whatever, who stole Cabarite, which is an H.G. Wells creation, and it's like a material, like a a mineral that floats, and they're going to use it for air travel. And in this one, he pretends to be the Phantom. And, As in, yeah. of the opera. Yeah. I mean, there is a bit where he says the name and uh, Alan Corwin says, Very operatic. It's so heavy-handed. And I, I know that, Alex, you definitely, while watching it, were just like, we get it, literary <laughs> reference. But I feel like that's in the spirit of the comic because every person you saw or talked to in the comic was a literary reference. Like, at one point, I think he took the entire cast of EastEnders, a famous British, like, soap opera, and, like, made them Victorian and put them in a panel as, like, people looking on. Everything was a reference in that comic. I wouldn't be so mad at the film for doing it if it wasn't so heavy-handed. It's not, like, deftly woven into the narrative. It's Mm -hmm. just the characters name-dropping other literary references. I mean, the best one being at the beginning when Alan Quartermain comes from Kenya and arrives in London and Sanderson Reed says, you made great time getting here. And he says, not as good as Phileas Fogg. Around the world in 80 days. I know. You were super into the bit where someone said that uh, Mr. Hyde was running across like a monkey, and uh, Quartermain replied, Well, this big monkey has terrorized the room more for months. And nobody in the room reacted to that <laughs> reference at all. And so I just, I overly was like, huh, get it? Room Because it was a monkey? <laughs> oh, spoilers for murder in the room org, I guess. I don't know room org that well, so the joke fell flat for me, but your delight of the joke brought it back again. This movie is definitely very extra. A lot of characters just like say lines that no one in real life would say, but because there's so many of them, it becomes a kind of coherent tone. Like there's a bit where Nemo shouts, The sound of treachery! Or, War. With whom exactly? Everyone. Well, I love the line after that because then Sean Connery says, That notion makes you sweat. Heavens, man. Doesn't it you? This is Africa, dear boy. Sweating is what we do. I don't know, like some of the lines, especially around Africa, yeah. are either funny like that or, oh. Yeah, there's this line Alan Quartermain has where he's talking about all the friends that he's had lost. Good men died, white and black. I'm just like, you could have just stopped at good men. Yeah. There's another character in there named Nigel, who when Sanderson Reed comes to recruit Alan, this guy basically pretends to be Alan Quartermain so that all the people who want to hear the stories aren't, don't bother him. And he does, he calls Africa the Dark Continent. Which is a historical thing, but you could just not say it this the year of our Lord 2003. I want to touch on Nigel for one point because when he says, tell Samson Reed to sit down, he says, you can fill my glass. He turns to the bar and says, Bruce double and holds up one finger and then as soon as Samson Reed is like he goes double and holds up four <laughs> fingers <laughs> which is like that's a ball baller move just like double double like four this movie has a lot of small things that are really fun yeah. like that at one point watching this Alex you mentioned how hard like make everyone seem to be the distrustful one at points yeah they were trying to place the blame on Skinner the Invisible Man because at a certain point just fucking disappears from the plot (laughs) trying to put it on captain nemo because he happens to worship a hindu deity of death kali also he also has a ganesha statue so he just worships various parts of the hindu pantheon he just happens to be working with kali at the moment i took this as 
again, like with the comic, none of them really got along at all. And this was a way to foster that without everyone just being kind of a dick. They wanted people to like the characters. And so they had to make it seem like there's a reason they all had to distrust each other. And then Mina and Dorian Gray have a past that's a little unclear, but they dated and it ended badly. When our last parting was such sweet sorrow. Which is also really frustrating to me because Mina in the books would never date Dorian Gray. And like, I think most of it is that a lot of what the film is trying to do is just so contrived and cliched and it's kind of shoveled in there during the very long ship ride from Paris to Venice. It was only three days. It felt like three literal days. (laughs) And there's the bones of a really good story. Like you take a bunch of monsters, put them in a submarine and just have it go slowly towards the destination while the tension slowly rises. That's Avengers. And what I'm saying is... In adapting it, they picked the most used plot of, oh, criminals trying to sell weapons to start a world war so they can sell more weapons. Like, I've seen that a a dozen times. They put a a fresh coat of paint on it with the Phantom and M and all that. There were a dozen different plots where they didn't have to do that. It doesn't use these characters all that well from being a very generic plot. Nothing about it is necessarily directly related to them as people or to the villains as people like in the comics with the devil doctor it it was this is a literary character this is what this like i said this character would do but it felt much more focused on the premise of what if literature Mm -hmm. altogether and it was the movie didn't do that like it didn't feel like this is a story that has to be told using these characters it was just kind of a generic superhero team plot in the most well-known work by bram stoker the plot is that the antagonist is trying to take over England by slow infiltration. And so they could have done a kind of similar thing of, what if that? But instead of just a bunch of scrappy librarians, you have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Captain Nemo and all these people all like fighting Draculia. Somebody show me Mr. Hyde punching Dracula in the face, you fucking cowards. Because <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about like the literary reference are heavy-handed. Yeah. And so is the traitor subplot. They also are very heavy-handed with the Sawyer Quartermain father-son thing. You see, Quartermain's son died at some point, and he did not name a mountain after him. And now this young Tom Sawyer has shown up to learn how to curve the bullets or whatever. There's a point in the movie where Quartermain is teaching Sawyer how to shoot and shoot very far very good which is like one of his things and he tells the story of how his son died and how he took his son on a mission and he says i led my son followed and then at the end of the movie as they're running through m's fortress there's a point where sawyer literally says you need now follow like the way nobody has ever said that (laughs) sentence another literary reference that i forgot was in this is uh ishmael from moby dick is in this and he gets killed by dorian gray i don't have more than that it was weird how he's just sort of there trying to be a character who mattered actually no it makes perfect sense he's a character who has no backstory and no real connections and just sort of unceremoniously vanishes from the plot which is exactly what happens in moby dick that actually works one thing that I don't want to like completely say is a negative for this film, but is a definite mixed bag, is the visual design. Hmm. There are some things that turn out really, really well, like the CGI for Skinner and the Invisible Man, mm-hmm. how that all works, and rather than doing bandages, it's like this white grease paint, paint. Yeah. and that is really effective, and it still looks pretty good for, as far as CG goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there are other things, like pretty much everything to do with the Nautilus. 
The design in and of itself is not bad, but it's way too big, and it doesn't make sense that that thing can go through Venice canals. <laughs> and the interior is very devoid of any color. It's either like a metallic or like plain gray or white. Like I get the idea of this is the mechanical part, so it's gray, and this is the part where people do stuff. So it's very nice and ivory, but it's really just gray and white. Yes. At some points, it's like, okay, this is an aesthetic choice for Nemo. That makes sense. But other times it felt like, nah, we don't have the budget to pay people to paint these sets. Just slap a coat of primer gray on it and rough it up a bit. It'll work. It does create an aesthetic. However, we see so much of it that it starts to feel more empty and less aesthetic. Mm-hmm. There's also like some weird things. When they first capture Mr. Hyde, he's wearing a top hat, but it's not like a normal sized top hat that a normal human man could wear. It's giant sized for Mr. Hyde. And like, who did he get to custom make that for him? Specifically for after he drinks the elixir. I want a whole prequel movie about that. <laughs> the haberdasher who works for Mr. Hyde? That's what yeah. it's called, too. Yeah. That's a great title. Yeah, it's a great title. It's like the amazing Mr. Olympic. <laughs> I'm an actor who works for Mr. Hyde. Should we get Daniel Ortberg on that? That sounds like exactly his kind of thing. Daniel Ortberg, tweet at us. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, I'm sad the hat doesn't stay around. He, he was in the first fight and then it's gone. And then he's just kind of a generic white man Hulk. Mm-hmm. Like, at least with a top hat, it would have had, a, I'd say, a Victorian flair. It would have at least felt like a flavor choice that wasn't just no shirt and bland pants. Yeah. Yeah. It also could have given him this weird quirk where he's like, no, I've got to go back for my hat. Yeah, and that's fine. That'd be really great, honestly. That could be delightful. Maybe he like gives it up at like a critical moment during his fight with, oh God, oh God, why? We did not have the budget for this. I love that he calls Nemo. Like, he's getting his ass kicked by the guy that's like 10 times bigger than him. And he's like, Nemo! He's like screaming for Nemo. Like, what is he going to do? Well, well, apparently yeah. his super speed with his saber... <laughs> I walk a different path. <laughs> I like how many swords are in this. They didn't have to do that, but they did. And I, I don't know, I like swords and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a little weird to have Nemo be the sword guy when in the comics there's a bit where he just has a Gatling gun and just mowing down dudes. Yeah, it, it feels really weird to have like the progressive science type person still using an, like a form of weaponry that is very soon to be completely outdated. One last weird visual thing that I want to talk about. At one point, Moriarty has delivered this audio recording telling all of them his evil plan. It also happens to have a secret high-pitched recording to set off a number of bombs around the Nautilus. Rather than just leave it as this audio recording, they keep cutting to this weird, grainy film texture visual recording of Moriarty and Dorian Gray lounging about Dorian's place, (laughs) gloating about how they tricked them, and mugging for the camera that's not there. There's a bit where he says, Everything so far has been misdirection. Sanderson Reed, the assassins in Kenya, the recruitment and mission. And he gestures his hand to the side as Sanderson Reed enters the room. Like, no one saw that. No one knew he was in the room with them. Like, it's just this great... He's performing it for the lady recording the disc. I don't know, but yeah. They're mugging and just doing hand gestures like this over here that you can see. Also during that recording, there's a great bit where... I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's something like the wolf in the hen house or whatever. And Dorian Gray just goes... Growl. Very sensually. (laughs) Yeah. Growl. It's... 
weird. I kind of love it. I love how Dorian is... He doesn't really care. He's just doing this because Moriarty has his painting. And he's like, I'm under contract. Sure. Dorian Gray in this film feels like he was focus tested specifically to be this very posh bad boy to get teenage women in seats. I want to talk about the picture (laughs) because it boggles my mind. They come into his room and they're, they're walking up the stairs in this hall and there's clearly a picture missing and Alan Quarterman calls it out. But it's at a point in the hall where they go up the stairs, they turn to go up the second stairs, and you're looking right at it. And in this one, if he looks at the picture, it reverses, and he takes on all the you know the stuff that the painting had taken on. The painting is like restored. If the painting's gonna kill you, you don't hang it in the hall. You walk down every day. That's like if you're like super allergic to bees and deciding to take up beekeeping. Yeah, you know that could have worked if they decided to, to be more in line with the original work and it's like if the painting is destroyed then exactly or there was something like a little curtain hanging up there where clearly it was like normally shut and the painting was obscured okay yeah he knows that's where the painting is i've got it it being open it's like okay now it's missing it was just hanging there where he would definitely almost see it every day yeah like he walked up the stairs with his eyes covered he's counted how many steps he knows like when he's at the landing it makes no sense that this version of dorian gray doesn't have a swiss bank account with a safety deposit box with that painting inside of it right Okay, so rewrite idea. He has one of those. The league's like first chunk of their mission is to steal that, and so, so it's a heist film. Once they have it, Moriarty's like, "Yep, thanks." And now I can bribe Dorian Gray to do evil things. You'll fall for my trap card. Bye. That could have worked really well. It would also get like Dorian Gray into the plot. Mm-hmm. So one last bit that I missed when I was complaining about the visual design of this film. <laughs> I I hate the Phantom's mask that Moriarty is wearing. It makes him look like Destro from GI Joe. <laughs> It does. So, another thing. At one point, they get the mask off, and Quarterman is like, Do not move, Rem. Or would you prefer Professor James Moriarty? And then Moriarty has a whole ramble about why he's not dead after falling over the Reichenbach Falls, as happened in the books. However, if you, for whatever reason, didn't grow up with Sherlock Holmes or watching this movie as a kid, having no knowledge for this, this scene is baffling to you, because you're like, Who is this person? What are they talking about? Why does this matter? To be fair, that could f- be said for many of the literary characters in this film. Right, but if you're, you know, a hypothetical kid who's read most of these books but happens to just, like, skip the Sherlock Holmes ones, you might not understand that bit, and so everything else is fine, and you feel very confused, like you missed something. I feel like if you're a high school kid reading The Invisible Man, you know who Professor Moriarty is by <laughs> osmosis. Like, you care enough about literature that you know who Sherlock Holmes is and that he fought Professor Moriarty. I, I just that's a thing in the consciousness that you wouldn't get to the invisible man without having picked that up somewhere especially not like captain nemo and all that stuff too you, you say that but i am that fool yeah but i know you know who professor moriarty is <laughs> but as a kid i did not that scene baffled me as a kid is what i'm saying fair enough <laughs> it's surprising now that you have a sherlock podcast yeah. That's, well, Jackson's the newbie. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the joke. <laughs> well, there are such a critique here. I will say that Mina in this film, despite the bafflingness of her being a vampire, is still great because Mina is always the best part of anything she's in. Mina Harker slash Murray always bumps the narrative up. 
I agree with you, but it's so frustrating that as soon as she's introduced in the plot, she has to deal with Quartermain's misogyny or other people trying to hit on her. That's true. Except it, Nemo. Nemo never hits on her. He's a gentleman. He does in the comics. He just hates the English. So that can also be a thing. <laughs> or maybe he walks a different path. Hey, yeah, with Ishmael. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't she's care for her in the comics. I think that that she doesn't want to put up with anybody's shit, but the way she's written is basically, I'm not going to put up with your shit, and nobody tells her anything, and then she just yells at them for not telling her things, mm. which, like, makes sense, but really it just comes off as Mina is just yelling at everybody that she's in charge, mm. and it doesn't do her any favors. Yeah, I can see that. Whereas here she's more the Thor, and that she's not, yeah. she's not necessarily in charge of anything, but she's just here to, like... Whenever there's a bunch of dudes that need to get messed up, she just turns into bats and messes them all up. And That's I'm a like, very yes. good comparison. She's yeah. definitely the Thor of this group. Mm-hmm. Oh, I will say, I'm really glad we had you here because Mike was visiting and we're like, hey, let's record an episode. And I figured when you mentioned League that you were just kind of like, you know, kind of a fan. It's like in a way that like, it's a fun, doofy movie. Mike can quote most of this movie from memory. And it was amazing. It was like watching a skilled painter do their thing. But I saw this probably in 2003, so I would have been about 13. And I didn't get a lot of the references, but I really liked the movie. And so I was probably 15 before I bought it because I saw it for like $5 at Walmart. I was like, oh yeah, I love that movie. Bought it. And for the next at least six months, if I was in my room, this movie was on. Like I would be watch it and I'd go like do some homework or whatever and it'd be on. I'd look up and like, oh, disc menu, hit play again. And I'd go back to doing homework. Like I had this on. If I was in my room, this was playing. And so I, I can do probably about 80% of it from memory, but which I will now begin. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love this movie so much. It's bad. It is not a good movie. I'm tell- I'll, I'll put it out right now. It is not good, but I, I love it dearly and fiercely. Weirdly, these films have very little in common, but I think they make a very interesting double feature. Just how weird and nebulous that time in superhero film was between 99 and 2003. Well, and Alan made... Alan. Alan. Yeah, my best friend, Alan Moore. (laughs) He made the comic to be like a a takedown of superhero comics. Like Watchmen was like the breaking the mold. League was almost like, okay, but we're going to do that, but we're going to do it as high art. And to see DC take it and make it into a cut-rate Avengers movie with literary (laughs) character names... One fills me with glee because <laughs> Alan Moore could use a little bit more of that. But also, it's so bonkers. And that's why I love it. Yeah, both of these films are just completely off the walls, but in very different ways. Mystery Men is off the walls and doesn't take itself serious at all. Whereas League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is off the walls and wants you to take it very seriously. I feel like Mystery Men just decided parody was enough. They traded on a lot of goodwill towards like, oh, it looks like the Burton film, so that's funny. And yeah. oh, it's it's a takedown of superheroes, and that's funny. And The cast is filled with comedians. Yeah. And League, very much, was a product of a comic book that is steeped in literary references. Everything in the world is a literary reference. And then they thought, okay, but if nobody's read those books, they're not going to get it. So they cut out the heart of the idea and then threw in a pulpy action film that they were like, okay, this is good. If they need someone to understand the reference, they had someone deliver the exposition in the weirdest way possible. Together with a professor named Van Helsing, we fought a dangerous evil. It had a name. Dracula. He was Transylvanian. Okay, well, I think we've exhausted. So it's time to vote, right? <laughs> I mean, we can. There's nothing moving on. It's not like we're going to toss this in with the Shadow and the Phantom next week.
I don't think either of these movies are good. I think these films are interesting and very much a product of their time and probably fun to watch and make fun of. Mm-hmm. Mm, for sure. I wouldn't want to watch these alone, but they're exactly the kind of things I want to watch with friends. Yeah. Like you. <laughs> you. I watch League Alone all the time. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. The real extraordinary gentlemen are the friends we made along the way. So, I think that concludes this issue of What If. As we mentioned previously, next week, we have two 1930s pulp detective films that Hollywood decided to make after Batman was a huge success. So, we will be talking about The Shadow and The Phantom. Which one's the Alec Baldwin one? The Shadow. The Shadow, okay. Alec Baldwin is the <laughs> Alec Baldwin is The Shadow. <laughs> Billy Zane is The Phantom. <laughs> I'm very excited for this. If you want to make sure to catch that episode as soon as it goes live, you can make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Podbean, and Spotify. If you'd like to listen to more of Mike's content. We're pretty much everywhere online. You can find Equalizers by searching E-Q-U-E-L-I-Z-E-R-S, like in SQL. Studying Granada, we're also pretty much everywhere. Unfortunately, as of we're recording this, our first like three episodes have been removed only because the service we use only allows 10 episodes. But you can catch up a little bit there if you want. Uh, we're working on it. Also, if you're like really <laughs> desperate, just email us and we will like just email you the podcast. Yeah. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but all of the Granada series episodes are on YouTube for free. If you're interested in catching up, there's really no barrier to entry. But as you're hearing this... The Equalizers episode that's currently out is Sword in the Stone 2, Once in Future, starring Jackson Eflin. It's a really good episode. It got a little buck wild in the middle. We talked a lot about Don Pablo's, weirdly, so <laughs> check it out if you're a fan. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank Mike for joining us this week on Gratuitous Positive. Thank you for having me. And I'd also like to thank all you listeners for tuning in. Hope you tune in next week. See you, Pause Nation. <laughs>